0: This series deals with themes of violence, loss of life, grief, trauma, and mental health. The content may not be suitable for younger listeners. Kia ora, I'm Alex Mason.
1: And I'm Mitchell Alexander. Welcome to Season 1 of Unclassified, a series where we bring you first-hand tales from those who served during New Zealand's 20-year deployment to Afghanistan.
0: Today we're joined by Chaplain Class 2 James Maloney to talk about the ongoing effects he's seen over the last decade amongst those who deployed to Afghanistan, how a person's faith is tested in a war zone and the role of chaplaincy in defence. Chaplain Class Two James Maloney, deployed to Afghanistan in 2012 as part of the New Zealand Provincial Reconstruction Team, known as Crib 20. As a chaplain, often referred to as a Padre, his job is to offer counsel, support and pastoral care to members of the New Zealand Defence Force and their families, and to support their well-being while on deployment and at home.
1: During his time in Afghanistan, James provided guidance to the contingent of around 150 personnel as they grappled with the sudden deaths of five of their comrades. He was also involved in a range of community projects, including helping to run English language classes for local Afghans. Thanks for joining us today, James. Nice to be here. Thanks, Tim. So just to kick us off, could you cast your mind back to 2012? Two New Zealand soldiers on your deployment had been killed in the ferocious Battle of Baghak, and then just two weeks later, three more Kiwis died when an improvised explosive device destroyed their vehicle. Can you tell us about the moment you learned about these latest fatalities?
2: Like most people, it's you remember events like that in pretty fine detail. We made a decision early on, the chaplain provides uh, social, spiritual support to people. So it's best to be around where people need you. And we made the decision for me to spend a lot of time at Ramiro, which is one of the forward operating bases in Birmingham. Uh, so we're in some sort of meeting in the main mess hall when, when a person came through the door and just said, look, there's been an IED
1: and we've got three KIAs. So what was your immediate response?
2: Firstly, a sense of, oh no, here we go again. It had been a quite a dangerous tour already, We'd already had two people killed. We'd lost several who were wounded. Every day the guys were finding IEDs and there was a sense that the threat level had escalated and was going to remain high for the tour. I've been involved with some of the debriefing where the psychologist had also flown across to support us in theatre and some of our chats about it being what's called a critical incident was that actually we're doing one critical incident but we could have many more before the end of this deployment. So we're quite aware of that. And you do kick into how to support people mode. What's needed first was the safety of the remaining team and then working out how we're going to continue to support going forward.
0: And what does that immediate care response look like when you're in a theatre of war?
2: Well, everyone's got a job to do. So to start with, I guess it was the team on the ground. So securing the site, making sure nothing else is going to happen, even down to getting support to the IED site, even that's quite dangerous because the road still might have IEDs on it. Our force is getting smaller by that stage, so the ability to keep people safe was getting more difficult. So it's working out what needs to happen at the scene and then extracting those people back safely to an operating base, collecting up the remains of our deceased. Uh, the more true fears component has to all happen. So there's quite practical things that have to happen in the moment before you can really consider the long-term care.
0: How much experience had you had with deployments? Was Afghanistan your first?
2: Afghanistan was my second deployment. The first one was to the Solomon Islands in 2008, 2009, and it was a very different tour. That was at the tail end of a conflict where it wasn't very dangerous. And so as a chaplain there, it was more or less trying to help out people from being bored. So, for instance, we arranged to get a platoon through a diving course because a bored soldier... Is probably going to cause trouble at some point. So it was more, I wouldn't say annoying welfare issues, but nothing significant or serious with that tour. Whereas with a place like Afghanistan, and, and because it's a high threat all the time, so you're always at a high level of awareness that you're in a dangerous environment, no matter what you're doing, Um, including teaching English, including visiting an orphanage, or even a simple visit to a bazaar can be a dangerous activity, so you're aware of that. So it kind of brings everything into quite a sharp focus around what you do and how you go about things.
0: Did you know what to expect before you went over there? Did you realise beforehand how different it would be to the Solomon Islands?
2: I had an idea, but at one point I remember sitting in a, um, it's called a sangha, so it's just a fortified position in the operating base, but it's reasonably isolated and just thinking in a quiet moment, how did I get here? I'm a Baptist youth pastor from Fitianga, joined the military thinking it'd be a great adventure, and it is a great adventure, but there is a sense of, well, I'm, I'm proper out of my depth here. But the training is quite robust. My work in chaplaincy on the ground in Linton Camp and other places, had prepared me well for tragedy because you walk alongside people in difficult or tragic circumstances. So that's reasonably aware. It is quite a different environment to operate in. it's hard to prepare someone for until they're in it. Previous tours, there had been danger. Uh, I think we've been overseas knowing that we're getting near to the end of the mission, so likely to be drawing down the mission following hours and likely it'll be more dangerous because of that reason. So there was that sense heading across that it was likely going to be more dangerous.
0: You have briefly touched on this, but for people who are unfamiliar with the role of a military chaplain, what is it that you do on a day-to-day basis?
2: So that's a good question. It actually took me a a good couple of years to figure out because I was a a minister in Upper Hutt basically running a church and I got to know military people coming along to the church And, and also you help out with welfare in your community quite a bit anyway. And one of those people ended up Suggesting that I consider chaplaincy as a thing. I didn't even know the military employed ministers, to be honest, but it seemed like a great fit for my personality and for what I like about Christian ministry as well, which is take a good welfare skill set into what is a regular secular work environment and you apply those skills. The gist of it is the military can be quite a rigid sort of a structure the chaplain can provide a reasonably safe place for a person to talk to that's outside their chain of command, but still a part of the culture and environment. And to talk to about any problem under the sun, so not you don't have to be religious, it doesn't matter what your background, you can come and talk to a chaplain and it's you know it's gonna be in confidence and, and reasonably safe. Uh, there are some caveats, we're not gonna keep confidence if someone's gonna hurt themselves or if they're gonna hurt someone else or be a risk to an operation, but we can help them navigate that and then pull in other resources as we need. And I think that's what the military most appreciates us for. We also do prayers on on parade for people, so uphold, I guess, some of the spiritual values of Defence. We're kaitiaki of that, the guardians of that, to a degree. Uh, we work with people of all faiths, supporting them with their spiritual background as well. But uh, Jack of all trades, master of none, uh, but it seems to work and it's got a long history in Defence.
1: So when did you actually become a chaplain with Defence and what was for you the key thing that drew you to joining the New Zealand Defence Force?
2: I have a natural curiosity and sense of adventure. And I'd been in a church for several years working as a minister, and I remember walking down a corridor and thinking, I might need something a bit more uh, when this came along. And it had the right mix of the Christian ministry side of it, the helping people, which is what drew me to ministry in the first place, as well as
1: adventure. I guess that's what drew me in. It must be quite unique doing what you do for a military organisation.
2: Yeah, you work as part of teams, though. So our role is to support command and the welfare of their people, right? So command, take responsibility for all aspects of welfare of their soldiers, sailors and aviators. So we support them as part of that. It is a unique role, but you're definitely part of a team. And I think that gets better outcomes and better
1: support for people. And what place do you think... Chaplaincy holds in the military world.
2: It's a unique but very privileged place, I'd say. You know that you when I walk into a unit, I don't go there just as myself. It's I'm carrying the history of others who've gone before me and their reputations as well. So we we build off others and the trust that's been built up. And I guess the core values or competencies for a chaplain would be: you need to be well known, so be out and about mucking in with the unit, going to PT, being a part of unit life, whatever that may be.
0: PT being physical training? Physical training,
2: training, yes.
0: So you have to be as fit as the other soldiers?
2: Uh, You have to be reasonably fit. You don't have to keep up with everyone. I mean, I'm nearly 50 now, so I'm not going to keep up with a 25-year-old, but I'll still go to PT and and keep my fitness up. And I've got to pass fitness tests like everyone else. But also, that's, that's how you get to be known and... And the idea is you are well-known and well-trusted, then you can do a good job as a chaplain. But those two things would be key to the role.
0: You mentioned that people don't have to be religious to come and talk to you, and anyone from any background can come seek out the Padre for a bit of support. Is your support based around one faith or do you offer guidance in a wide range of religions?
2: I have a working knowledge of a reasonable amount of religions, just the nature of the role and the interest. I come to this with my faith background and how I view people because of it. And the gist of that is that all people are children of God. So you have intrinsic value just in that. And so if you come to talk to me about a problem, that's the value that I see in you. And that's how I'll try to support you in whatever form that takes. Most times it's just a talk. So there's a lot of power in listening and being heard And often a person just doesn't know how to talk about an issue. So they'll turn up and want to talk, yeah. And we can help them navigate that and then work out what are some resources that might help. And that might be counselling, that might be one of our field psychologists, that might be the social worker, which we also employ, or it might just be talking with one of their bosses or a colleague about, hey, this is what I'm going through right now and I'm not sure how to navigate it. That's kind of how it works.
0: When you're on deployment, what sort of conditions are you working in? So for people who've never been somewhere like Afghanistan, is there a chapel that's set up as a facility on base or does the local terrain become your chapel? Where are you providing the support?
2: You make it work wherever you can. I just got a photo from a colleague who's with the training teams in the UK and he's taken a field service with the Ukrainian soldiers that are sitting around a grass paddock. And that's the only time they could get, so they pulled it together and you ran a service link. They asked them to. One of the things about combat and faith and missions like this is it becomes quite a lot more important if you have a faith background and your life's on the line. That's significant. I know there's the cliche saying there's no atheists in a foxhole, but there's actually quite an element of truth for that. When when you're going out on a patrol and you're not sure if you're going to come back or if you're going to get injured. Faith's quite important. So, even a simple thing like a communion service, which we happen every Sunday in New Zealand, and I've taken a lot of communion services in my denomination, it's at another level in a place like Afghanistan with soldiers who are going out on patrol and not sure how that's going to go. So, it's a small contingent who'd have of the contingent, a small number have a reasonably strong faith background. We ran chapel services every week for those people, and faith's important. I would say that although not many identify as religious. Most have some sort of spiritual background or spiritual understanding and I guess we can help with that too.
0: You obviously help others navigate through hard times and provide guidance to them. What about yourself? Can you tell us about your own faith experience while you were deployed in Afghanistan?
2: Yes, I can. Tragic events tend to go one of two ways but every person with a faith background at some point has to wrestle with suffering and develop a theology around suffering too. And that can be that I've worked with colleagues with a a strong faith whose partners have died of cancer, for example, and their faith has been okay, but you say, well, my wife was a good person. Why did this happen to her? The why questions are quite a big deal. And some of those questions can't be answered. Faith was an anchor for me while I was across there, basically. It's something you can do when you feel like you don't have much control over things. And simple things like spending time praying for the contingent in my downtime, looking for opportunities to talk with people about what's going on, and being a reasonably consistent presence around the different operating bases I could get across to. Making an effort to go visit where I could, for example, Romero and even out to some of the further bases as well, or joining in on a patrol if there was space and it, was, and it wasn't going to be a hindrance to them, I'd go with them. At one point I had a choice to go visit a group and I didn't have to go. I, you know, you can make an excuse not to. I've got other work to do or there's no expectation for me to do it. But it was a trip across dangerous roads where any trip out of the base could be with risk across IED roads the same road where we'd lost troops to an IED but the scripture that came to my mind making that decision was a hired hand runs at the first sign of danger but you are more than a hired hand and I thought I'm not just a hired hand and just pack up my kit and get in the back of the lav like everyone else and talk and be jovial and not off to sleep with the team, but to be present with them in danger as well.
1: I guess following on from that, how much was your faith, I guess, tested whilst you were in Afghanistan, surrounded by that danger and at times, obviously, tragedy?
2: I didn't see it as a test of faith. So at no point did I think my faith was being tested because of that. I think my character was tested. Resilience was certainly tested, but also I'm just like everyone else. Like I had to work through my own grief, my own reaction to trauma, what that meant for family back home and the whole reintegration with New Zealand. I go through that just like everybody else. Uh, It's not an easy reintegration. It's hard to describe to anybody who hasn't been through it, I guess, like parenting or like marriage. I don't think it tested my faith in that way.
1: So how were you able to help others through that tragedy whilst you were still going through your own grieving process in your own way?
2: One way is you don't even know it's so hard until you get back, I think. So you're operating such a high level of stress or adrenaline you're not really aware of it, but you can set the conditions for things to go better back in New Zealand. So a simple thing like running a memorial service when we our first guys were killed in the battle. So the guys had to come back and and basically clean up and be ready to go again. There wasn't much opportunity for downtime, but we were to run a memorial service in theatre. There was an opportunity to pause, to express grief and to acknowledge the loss the day after. And that's the same for the IED as well down the track. Those things help set the conditions for healing down the track. If you can do that well, it helps process it or begin process it or set the conditions for processing it. Another avenue is um, supporting other services. So soldiers are naturally, well, everyone is naturally suspicious of psychologists or anybody who can write a report on you or you're just not sure about it. To a degree. So part of it is helping to demystify that and, and encouraging people to engage with our psych process that you might not think you need it now. And and most thought they wouldn't need it then, but down the track, this is important. So try and engage with it as best you can. Supporting the psychologists in theater as well, so they can help. We had a pretty good psych who, who was a ex-medic, so he could relate to people quite well, but just helping form a welfare team so they're not isolated. And I guess being present, being around, uh, keeping those relationships going, knowing that
1: I might need to provide support back in New Zealand for a long time as well. You obviously talked about a number of situations or one particular situation where you were putting yourself in danger. It was obviously quite a, a dangerous environment that you were in generally. When you are there, do you carry arms in order to defend yourself if required as a chaplain?
2: Yeah, that comes up a fair bit. So we fall under the laws of armed conflict, So, and we're non-combatants as a status. So we're a Red Cross. So people think we're medics, but we're non-combatants the same as medics. Um, It can cause a bit of confusion, but you carry a Red Cross on your patch on your shoulder. You're entitled to carry a weapon to defend yourself. You're not supposed to take part in offensive operations or even defensive operations in general, but you can defend yourself. Um, or others under your care. My decision was to carry a weapon in theatre. Part of that was not so much even for my own safety, but if I wanted to leave the wire and go on a patrol and there's only four seats in a vehicle, if I don't carry a weapon, that's one area that's not really covered. And then that's every chaplain's decision. I didn't have to carry a weapon. I could have said, no, I don't want to. But I also wanted to get out and about and be present. So my decision was to carry a rifle. You need to be familiar with weapon systems anyway. so. We do the same weapons training as everyone else, and even the stand-to position. So um, if there's an attack on a base or something bad happens, everyone knows where to go. You've got a place to go, and the chaplain's place is the med bunker to support the medics or the nursing officer if they're there. Part of that's working with people who might come in injured with weapons. You have to be able to take those weapons and make them safe or know if a grenade's a problem or not and how to handle it. So the best way to do that is to be weapons qualified like everyone else.
1: So how does that feel for you personally to obviously carry something which is capable of, of violence when your key purpose over there is to support and nurture faith and peace?
2: Well, one of the things that I joined for was adventure, and part of that is challenging situations, and I didn't find it too much of a problem. If I'd had to shoot in anger and kill somebody or hurt them, I would have suffered following that, like most people or in that situation, suffer. But I'm there to support soldiers who we're asking to do the same thing. So part of my understanding of is is I'm going to be present with that challenge as well, as well as our soldiers. So I was happy to carry a rifle, to use it as I'm allowed to use it within the non-combatant guidelines. But I also knew that if it came to that, there'd be a cost to that later on.
0: Did you find you had to fire a weapon at any time in Afghanistan?
2: Uh, No, not in anger, just on the range.
0: The work of the New Zealand Defence Force over there, it was obviously about much more than engaging with insurgents and that dangerous element of the work. Personnel were there to help the countries rebuild. Can you tell us a bit about the work that you were involved in in that capacity?
2: I think by the time we got there, there's an awareness that we're going to be withdrawing from Afghanistan. There's awareness that the Americans won't be there forever. And even when I taught English to the students, so we'd as you mentioned, we had a, um, someone had set up English classes, a taplin from an earlier rotation. So we'd teach local university students English, a great way for us to interact and for them to learn a skill set that we actually open the world up as well. Because once you know English, you can start researching, you can read articles online. There's a lot that comes with that. But when I talked to them about what's most important to you, they would have said security. Security is important to us. We don't have security. We don't have anything. So they want to be engineers. They want to be doctors, they want to be nurses, they want to be farmers, and and they wanted to train and help their people. But they knew that without security, none of that was going to be possible, which unfortunately is what we're seeing in Afghanistan now. The security is not there. So the option, opportunities for people are far less.
0: Having that in the back of your mind, that dynamic of knowing that there would be a withdrawal in future, and the security that had been achieved so far was potentially going to disappear again. How did you carry out your work over there and engaging with the communities while knowing? Well, we had
2: hope. So the big security was partner capacity building. So we lost five soldiers on our tour. The local defence force lost more than 20. So that's their police who are training with ours, their quick reaction force. They, they took some pretty heavy knocks in the time we were there. But our guys were working hard to train them so that they could maintain security. And that was the hope that when this all came to an end, the local forces, the government, the Afghan military would be able to maintain their own security. Maybe it was a bit optimistic, but that was the hope.
0: At the time that you were there, could you paint a picture for us of what life was like for the locals and what they were like as people to engage with?
2: It depended on which part of Afghanistan you went to. And Bami and a very different culture to ours. Interestingly, much more, most of the Bible stories and scripture that I was familiar with and trained with is more suited to Afghan Middle Eastern culture than is New Zealand culture. Uh, shame on is a big deal. Family uh, role relationships are quite important. But in, in general, people just wanted to send their sons and daughters to school. They wanted to run businesses and and build a good society. There was some sense of hope. There was construction going on. uh, There was work going on within the university. There was a sense of hope for that. There's a lot of colour around in Bamiyan. The girls wore colourful shawls and would talk. Uh, The further south you went, that was the same as well. Whereas some aspects of the north, there was less colour and you wouldn't see many females at all. And that's more the Taliban aligned areas.
0: What do you feel were some of your biggest personal achievements while you were deployed in Afghanistan doing the work that you were doing?
2: As difficult it was, I was proud to be a part of it. And I hope I've been able to offer good support during the tour to our soldiers and also to support coming back to NZ2. Though so I know we took some losses back in New Zealand as well. I'd like to think that New Zealand was there for more than a decade even a simple thing like visiting the orphanage. So some children have had 10 years of soldiers visiting and interacting with them. And I'd like to think some of our Kiwi attitude has rubbed off and become a part of their culture as well from our time there. I guess that's the hope and if that's so, that'd be a great achievement.
1: So how would you sum up the impact of the New Zealand Defence Force's overall contribution?
2: Probably not in the way that we would think. So there there is the construction that's gone on and partner projects that have been significant, so there's no doubt about that. But our relationships have been huge and that's ongoing. So we've seen a lot of interpreters since the fall of Afghanistan and their families and people who've worked for us. Now there's a strong Afghan community connected to defence here in New Zealand. Uh, That's hope for a lot of people who had a pretty dire situation back home. And even those left in theatre, I'd still like to think our relationships that we've formed over those years have an ongoing impact in what is now a difficult place for people to live and work.
1: Well, now ten years on, as as you've mentioned, things have changed. The Taliban is in power following the withdrawal of the last Allied forces in 2021. What's your response to the suggestion that has been made in the past that the efforts of the New Zealand provincial reconstruction team and the loss of Kiwi soldiers We're in vain. I think that's
2: pretty short-sighted, and I I wouldn't see it that way. We supported a good, positive change in Afghanistan. It hasn't ended how we wanted, but we gave it a good shot. Dougie Grant, who was killed overseas, there's a a story about a conversation he's having with a colleague about this in Afghanistan in a cafe, saying, well, what's the point of being here? And he simply said, well, Afghan kids deserve a chance too, I think that's more how I see it. We tried to give Afghanistan, the people of Bamian, a chance and to help support them in that. And I think it's made quite a positive difference, maybe not overall in the whole of Afghanistan, but to some people it's made all the difference. And that relationship now is, is part of New Zealand culture with Afghan communities based here.
0: Since you've returned from Afghanistan, how much... Has your experience over there stayed with you? And how have you coped with some of the more difficult things that have stayed with you?
2: Yeah, that's a a more difficult question. Um, We had a reunion recently for our 10-year anniversary of that tour. And it was great, actually. A reasonably good turnout. Some couldn't make it, but a pretty good turnout. Most would say it was difficult, actually, to make the decision to come back together because it brings up emotion and memories and loss that stay with us all that time. But once you're there, it's fantastic to catch up with people and talk about their experiences and, and I guess, what connects us. Most have probably wrestled with the journey. Some have been open about it, some haven't. But it would be very difficult to come away from a time like that without a cost to you personally. In my experience, and I talk about my experience, other people's journeys are theirs to share, I probably putted along reasonably well for a couple of years, um, but it did get to the point where I wasn't doing as well as I thought. And this is probably common. Um, My wife actually said, you need to go and get some help at this point. And even now, 10 years later, of course, it still brings up a lot of emotion and a lot of good memories and a lot of sadness that goes with that for people, uh, the people who didn't come back and those who came back injured and how that's affected their lives and their families. So I had to engage with support as well, but it took somebody else, ironically, nudging me in to get that support, which involved seeing a clinical psychologist. At one point, I was on antidepressants for a while, but that's all part of a healing journey. A feeling's the way to talk about it, maybe processing it so you can keep working well in the environment and, and stay within defence, doing a good job. But I think that'd be pretty common. Often it's somebody else who tells you to go get help, we seem pretty crap at it, especially guys in particular. Rather just face a bullet than talk about emotions, although emotions affect us deeply, just like everybody else. But if it's not processed, it ends poorly, it ends broken relationships, um, alcoholism. There'll be some consequence if we can't find a way to process that experience and those emotions.
0: When you've talked to others who were there in Afghanistan, have they had similar experiences to yourself in the years afterwards and how have they managed that lasting impact?
2: Most would have, yes. I mean, I I wouldn't claim to know everyone that well off the deployment to know, but those I know reasonably well, probably not a day goes by when they don't think about it in some way. And yes, would had some of the issues processing that and working it through and making it a comfortable part or a more comfortable part of your life, but there's some things which will never be that easy. I said you get more comfortable with crying during movies. It wasn't a thing before, it, it is since Afghan. And I guess in
1: general, being a little bit more comfortable with being broken to a degree. James, thank you very much for your time today. We really, really appreciate you sharing your experiences You're welcome. with us. We'll end with one final reflection. Okay. What's something you wish you had known? before you went to Afghanistan?
2: I think Afghanistan made me a far better chaplain. So the experience over there in dealing with that has made me much better in my role than defence. Ironically, if I'd had that before I went, I would have been a better support to people, I think. But there's only one way to get experience.
0: This podcast is a production of the New Zealand Defence Force Defence Public Affairs Team. We're your hosts, Alex Mason and Mitchell Alexander. We'd like to thank our guests for sharing their stories with us.
1: If you need to talk to someone, you'll find details for support services in the show notes. We welcome your feedback on this podcast. Contact us via email. podcast at nzdf.mil.nz Hi,